I'm going to get an introduction, I guess, because I'm from here. But it's all right. Billy just juked me on the introduction tonight, and that's all right. Uh, it is great to be here tonight with y'all, and it is an honor for me to be able to kick off our summer youth, our summer youth series, our summer series uh, tonight. As you can tell, my mind is tired. I have gone in four million directions this week, and I'm heading off to Florence in the morning on a case, and it's just... Bobby, never slow down. And uh, Melvin, you know what I, I feel like, I think, probably. But uh, as I've thought this week, and I've been very, very excited about talking about the Beatitudes. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So if you'd like to get your Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we'll be getting there momentarily this evening. Uh, I see that uh, my PowerPoint looks like the, I forgot that I didn't have a font. So I hope everything spaced out. That's supposed to be a different font up there, but that's what happens when you use new ones. But the series this summer focuses on really what God and, and what we have in the Bible as being one of the greatest sermons ever preached by the Lord and our Savior. And you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five through Matthew chapter seven, and you can't help but see the numerous accounts and lessons that that were given there by Jesus. Uh, of things that really are very appropriate and applicable to our, even our lives today. And contextually, before I jump into the Beatitudes, I want to at least try to introduce a little bit, if I could, of the Sermon on the Mount for us as we are going to dive into that this summer through the series of lessons that, that Terry has lined up and planned for us during the, the, the summer series. Uh, one writer has said this, No human production has ever approached the masterful work of our Lord and what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. And variously, others call it sometimes and describe it as the Magna Carta of the kingdom and the heart of the teachings of Christ. And this matchless lesson contains all that is basic to Christ's life and work. And in this discourse are found the central teachings and the major emphasis of our Savior. We often jump right into this passage and really almost pick and choose certain passages for different lessons and, and different ideas. And, and rarely do we look at the whole sermon uh, together as a group and as a whole. So I'm excited about this summer as we go through this book, or as we go through these, these chapters and then go through this sermon, uh, this lesson that, that Jesus taught for us to try and see, hopefully, some of the overarching ideas that are there in the passage of Scripture for us, even in this world today. Uh, and contextually, if you think about what was going on around there, Jesus had just begun his ministry. And if you look there, and I don't have the fancy maps to be able to put up on the screen, but if you remember here, and if you look in Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 5, you see Jesus beginning his ministry. Of course, after the, the, the days of fasting in the wilderness, after being tempted by Satan, after being baptized of John, you see him going among the people there in Galilee and beginning what we know of as his earthly ministry. And, and that three plus so years of his life that we have recorded in the scriptures for us as he labored and toiled and he taught and went among the people gives us profound statements and lays the very foundations for what we would call the kingdom of Christ, what we would recognize and understand to be the church of Christ as he lived and as he ministered among the people. So what we get to here in Matthew chapter 5 and, and going on into chapter 6 and chapter 7 becomes a discourse that we you know, usually call the Sermon on the Mount, but which in fact really is just him sitting down and teaching his disciples. Don't be fooled. He's not up in the midst of a synagogue. 
He's not there among uh, really a group of, of people's trying to preach and proclaim as we do today to try and encourage and admonish and bring people to Christ. That's not even what he's doing here. This sermon here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is really the underpinnings, the foundational teachings that Christ is trying to convey to his people, his disciples, so that they will understand what it means to have a true relationship with not only God, but a true relationship with other believers. And as you go through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, verse after verse after verse after verse, Jesus is going after them in a way that really digs down deep. It goes down through the teachings of Judaism. It goes back through their Jewish history and those, those teachings that they may have learned before in their childhood days. It goes back beyond those things and reaches back to the beginning of creation. It reaches back to the beginning and the, the heart of God so that these people don't really truly understand necessarily what it means to just obey some rules and regulations and those laws which have been promulgated to them as Jewish people. Now, don't, don't forget, they're, they're Jews. And in fact, all the apostles had that Jewish background, but Jesus goes far beyond that. And as you go through the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, you can't help but see the hope. You can't help but see the good things which he says there to encourage them to think more, think deeper, think harder, understand the principles even much more than they ever thought they understood them before. That's why when you get into the later chapters here and past the Beatitudes and into these lessons, you know, Jesus starts talking about you have heard this, but I tell you this. Because he is trying to reinforce and encourage them as they go through, challenging them to reevaluate those things which they had previously learned and that they had understood throughout their lives. Jesus, as he begins this lesson, though, as he begins these lessons here and, and that he begins the Sermon on the Mount, we see these first 12 verses as being a wonderful introduction to this changing of the mindset. And as, as the disciples gather around Jesus there up on the hillside, there on the mountainside, and they think and then listen, and they, they hear what Jesus is having to say, you can't help but understand how they have been amazed, or they would have been amazed, and they would have been astonished. They would probably even have been a little bit confused at times, trying to understand exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. In fact, as you see at the beginning of this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 there, you see that it really began as a small group. Jesus, the preceding verses there in Matthew chapter 4, the multitudes had started coming around him. Why? Because he started healing them. He started helping the sick become healed. He, he caused those that were, were ailing, those that were in trouble, those that had disease in verse 23 of chapter 4, uh, of any kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people were coming to him wanting to be healed, and he healed them. He showed them his power. He showed them his majesty. And verse 24 says the news about him spread throughout all of Syria. And that whole area understood and heard that there was this man in Galilee who could heal them. And so the multitudes began coming. And as the multitudes came, Christ, in his effort to try and teach those disciples around him, withdrew himself and from the multitudes, went up on side on top of the mountain. It says there in chapter 5, and he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. This, this teaching position of sitting is very much like any other rabbi would have at the time of the day. Would, would have sat and his, his, his students would sit at his feet listening to the lessons that were taught. And Jesus expounded upon them lesson after lesson as any other Jewish rabbi would have here at the feet 
uh, on the side of the mountain at the feet of his disciples. They were listening and they were hearing these things that we call the Beatitudes as he began the sermon. Verses 1 through 12 lay out the foundation for a change in heart and a change in mind and a change in perspective. Showing them that they were to be different. And as we go through the remaining points this evening, I hope that we will be encouraged as well from this lesson to be able to think about what the Beatitudes say to us in our lives today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, read this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness, for the sake of righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we read in this passage of scripture here at least eight beatitudes that we commonly refer to and collectively call the Beatitudes. Our children sometimes memorize them. I believe they can even earn a card, by the way, if you want to encourage them to do that. You know, as they, they, they listen and as they learn, these are common things that we have looked at and read in our lives. But as we go through the lesson tonight, I hope to challenge you to think about them maybe in a different way. Oftentimes we pick these out one by one, and we could do a thorough study on each and one individually. In fact, a couple years ago, I believe we had a class on the Beatitudes, where we looked at the Beatitudes here one by one and dove into them each individually. But as you look at the Beatitudes here that Christ gives to the people and to the disciples, you can't help but start thinking, how does this apply to me? How did it apply to them? What does it mean to be blessed? And in fact, a lot of us know that a common word, and I'm not sure if there's modern translations that you may be using, but some of them actually use the word happy. You know, what does it really mean to be happy here in the passage of Scripture? Because some people translate this word as being happy. What does it mean to be happy in life? What are those things which God wants us to do to be happy? And the Beatitudes start speaking to us when we start taking them together as a group, I believe, and letting us see what God wants us to do as Christians in our lives today, what things He wants us to be a part of, which ways He wants us to, to think, which ways our hearts should be molded. And the Beatitudes speak profoundly toward us to that today. Now, the greatest example, uh, the greatest thing that God wants us to do is to be happy. And, and I want to be very very bluntly uh, honest with you on that. God wants us to be happy within His bounds. He wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to, to understand true, genuine happiness in our lives. In fact, that's the greatest desire, I believe, that God has in our lives. You look back, why would He have created the perfect environment for man in the Garden of Eden? Why would He have given man the perfect mate, the perfect spouse to begin with in life. Why? Because he wanted us to enjoy true happiness in life. 
That's what he wanted for Adam and Eve. And we see that true happiness as they walked hand in hand around the garden. As, as it says that God walked with Adam and Eve there in the garden in the midst together. We see that happiness and that companionship, that togetherness that God experienced there with Adam and Eve from the beginning. And man was very happy until Satan entered into the equation. He, he ruined that bliss of man. However, what we see is that the, the ultimate point and principles and purpose of God wanting us to be happy doesn't end. In fact, Satan does not spoil his plan at all. Because as we see, as the scriptures unfold, the happiness, the, the, the point of God wanting us to be genuinely happy is further brought about because he sends his only son for us to come to the earth to offer that once for all sacrifice that will restore man's genuine happiness in the end. And the scriptures here as we look in Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12 help us understand what this genuine happiness that God wants us to have is. The word blessed used in the passage is a Greek word, markarios, uh, which is more than really just happiness at all. And I keep using the word happiness, but it really is not a good translation in American, in our American English or any kind of English that I know of, uh, of, of trying to translate the word blessed into happiness or happy. It's a much deeper concept. It's much more uh, than uh, just being happy. It incorporates the meaning of wholeness, of joy, of well-being, of total peace or tranquility of spirit. The term describes a condition of inner satisfaction of man that is expressed by our Lord. Uh, we see that in John chapter 14 and verse 27. It's, it's a single term that aptly describes the abundant life. And we see that described and talked about by, by Jesus himself in John chapter 6 verse 35 and also over in John chapter 10 and verse 10 where, where Jesus came so that we would enjoy our life and enjoy it more abundantly. And the idea is that it's above and beyond just simple enjoyment. It's not just being merely happy because of our external conditions and, and situations and circumstances. We are internally happy because of the situations and circumstances that God has given us and blessed us with in our lives. When we're talking about being blessed, it's because we are truly blessed. We have those experiences. We have those gifts. We have those blessings from God that allows us to be blessed. One author says this, the, the, this blessedness here in the passage is, is broader and deeper than just mere happiness. Happiness comes from without and depends on environmental or material circumstances. But blessedness is an outward condition which environment cannot seriously affect. It lies not in outward circumstances, but in the inward life. Not in what a man has, but what he is. And that becomes happiness, genuine happiness in a Christian. Man's genuine happiness has always been and will always be God's primary objective. We see that in multiple verses and we see that from God's actions and what he continually does on our behalf in the scriptures. God's primary objective has always been to reconcile us and to keep us united with him. John chapter 14 verse 26 and Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 through 8 underscore the importance of us being united and being reconciled with God. And we know that he's doing those things so that we will enjoy happiness in life. We can enjoy happiness. And we know that God's heaven offers eternal happiness to man. Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, where we can experience the joy, the, the happy, genuine happiness of being forever with God in heaven. 
Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people, as we commonly hear people say. And it's prepared for those who are ready, willing, and who are in a condition to enjoy that relationship with God. And so God wants us to be happy. God wants us to enjoy genuine happiness. It has always been and will always will be. And it is today his point and his purpose for us in our lives to enjoy genuine happiness with him. However, what's interesting, too, is we don't have to wait for eternal heaven to have this kind of happiness in our lives. Some people think, well, we can't enjoy this true, you know, this, this joy, this, this uh, unfailing uh, happiness until we get into heaven where there's no pain and no sorrow and no sickness, no dying anymore. We can't enjoy it till we get to that, that destination, but that's not true. In fact, the scriptures help underscore the fact that man doesn't have to wait for eternal heaven in order to find this genuine happiness in life. God has provided certain instructions on how happiness can be secured while still living here on earth, and that's what we see the Beatitudes. There, these instructions are summarized in the Beatitudes found in God's Word. They offer us direction so we can rest in the true happiness that God offers for us. The great love of God is clearly revealed in the divine desire that man find genuine happiness. And so the Beatitudes focus our attention upon these requirements that we must meet. Those things that are required and necessary for us to find true happiness. And once we've conformed to those things, once we are doing those things, once we are participating as God wants us to do, we will enjoy that happiness even while we live on this earth, awaiting God and awaiting his heavenly home one day. We can enjoy the wonderful blessings in life. We will be able to understand that peaceful happiness will be able to guard our lives and soothe our souls uh, as we live on this earth. And this topic, this, this idea of, of happiness, true happiness, genuine happiness, is one that a lot of people think is an impossible dream today, but it's not. It's a realistic goal for us even in our lives today. But it takes effort. It takes something of a change in heart and a change in mind, a change in perspective, just as Jesus emphasizes here to his disciples that were sitting at his feet there on the mountain, that it takes you making a choice to be happy and blessed. But we can be blessed if we follow what God says. True happiness is only found when one follows God's directions and does those things which he's prescribed for us to find true blessedness in our life. And those who are truly blessed, obviously, will draw others to the Lord's salvation. You want to talk about the greatest evangelistic tool there is? And that's to make sure you live a happy life. If you are embracing this true blessed, this genuine happiness that God wants us to have in life, you will lead others to him. You will lead others to him because they will want to experience what you experience. Why else would he say, love one another? When they see the love you have toward one another, they will want to know where you come from. They know us by our love. They know us by our experience, by our mentality, by our perspective on life, by the idea that even when we're kicked, when we're down, that we are fine with that. Because as Christians, we have that proper perspective. Our happiness and our blessedness is not determined by our outward condition, but it's determined by our inward convictions. Now, as you think about the the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes here, as we think about this, there's a couple of general lessons that I think that are great to to look at about these. And then I want to try to look at, if I could, if I have time, about the eight different steps 
to happiness that we see prescribed here by the Beatitudes here uh, in the text. The Beatitudes in the scripture here, the general lessons of great value, what we see is, first of all, the, the, the Beatitudes describe character that every Christian should possess. As we think about these overview, this general lessons from the Beatitudes, what we see is that each and every one of these are are Beatitudes which describe what every Christian, every one of us, can possess. Some of us look down and say, well, some of them seem a little more difficult, and, and they do. Some of them look maybe a little bit harder than others, and of course they are. But these are not descriptions of things which are, are only applicable to the most pious of Christians or, or maybe those that we see as being church leaders. These, these beatitudes are not applicable only to the elders or the deacons or our ministers. You know, these beatitudes are for all of us. They are applicable to every one of us. And we should never look at these and say, well, that's just not, that's not for me. I, I just can't live up to that. Because these Beatitudes speak to everyone, to our circumstances, our situations, and they're all things that every one of us can demonstrate and show because Christ has outlined it for us. When we study these, we are examining what God means for every one of us to become. And I think it's important for us to understand that we cannot pick and choose which one of these we want to go under. God wants us to follow them all. Christ looked at his disciples at his feet and outlined all eight of these for them to consider and to think about, and to take a hold of, and to live out, and to try and strive for. And even today, as we look at these Beatitudes, they are applicable to every one of us. Secondly, not only are they applicable to every one of us, but every Christian is expected to demonstrate all of these traits. So not only can, are we all included under this these uh, this ideas and these wonderful traits that God encourages us to be a part of, But we should look and make an effort to demonstrate all of them together. As I said, you don't pick and choose. We don't try to think that we can select some of them and ignore the rest. You know, some feel good if they do some or even a majority of these things, but such is really foreign to what the Lord indicates in the Scriptures here. It's an all-inclusive mentality. God wants us to change our hearts, change our minds in, in the totality. And by looking at the totality of the situation, he wants all eight of these things to be infiltrated into our life so that we will experience this peace, we will experience this happiness that he outlines and prescribes for those who are his disciples. You know, one writer said this, it's, it's not right to say that some are meant to be poor in spirit and, and some are meant to mourn and, and some are meant to be meek and, and then others are meant to be pacemakers and so on. No, every Christian is meant to be all of them and to manifest all of them at the same time. And that's right because you can't pick and choose. In fact, as we go on and you think about this, the Beatitudes, you can't help but see how they're intertwined and mixed together. How one helps support another. How one cannot be done without another in their life. You know, how can you truly mourn spiritually? How can you spiritually mourn if you're not meek? You know, how are you able to to be thirsting and hungering after righteousness' sake, but yet not have that, that heart for peacefulness? Because that's what righteousness is. It brings about peace. They intertwine, they they go together. You don't pick and choose which ones are going to be a part of our life. In fact, Christians, all of us, should be trying to demonstrate 
every single one of these in our lives. These traits, as I said, are dependent on each other. As a disciple progresses and grows in grace, as, as 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and following, talk about this idea you're building and expounding and, 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 and stepping on one another, building up our lives so that we become stronger, more faithful, more dedicated. It rings true of, of what James chapter 1 talks about when you're enduring the trials and tribulations, that you allow it to what? Become perfected, become completed in our lives. Why do you do that? So that you have the complete fullness And you're not lacking anything. The same principle is seen here with respect to the Beatitudes in our lives. We don't pick and choose one over the other. We embrace them all, strive for all of them. These traits also are are unnatural characteristics. By unnatural, I say we're not born this way. You look at all these traits that you see listed in the Beatitudes, and they're not things that, that are actually born in our lives. There are things that are developed by a Christ-like focus in our lives. Now, I'm not saying that some people aren't born maybe more with a, or predisposed to being meek or, or humble, etc. You know, I mean, I think you've got a, a, some people that have maybe a, a better inclination for that type of a mindset in your life. But these traits that, that Christ lists in the Beatitudes are things that are developed, that are learned, and that are not just innate to a, an individual. How do you know to hunger and thirst after righteousness if you don't learn something before that? How do you understand what it really means to mourn in a spiritual sense if you don't have that spiritual foundation? These are somewhat unnatural characteristics for us. They are uh, inclinations that are superseded by a spiritual transformation, that type of transformation that Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 talks about when you're transformed from the the thinkings of this world, you're renewing your mind and you're transforming it to the mentality of what Christ would want. Whenever you think about Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, the idea of putting away and and being more spiritually minded comes into focus. And the whole idea here is is that that it's not natural. You're not born with it. It's something learned. It takes dedication. It takes knowledge. It takes studying. it, It takes encouragement from one another. But these Beatitudes describe people who have been changed by the power of God's word. We're not born with this knowledge. We're not born with this understanding. But we have been changed because of it. In our lives. We see also the Beatitudes and the traits that we see here describe differences between the Christians and non-Christians. What kind of differences are you talking about here? What are you thinking uh, of here? It's hard not to see the differences. Christ is calling them out here. Those that are disciples, those that are his believers, these are the ways they're supposed to to, uh, be equipped. These are the ways they're supposed to act. These are the things that they're supposed to do. That's an obvious contrast to those who are not disciples of Christ, right? We look at the the lessons by Christ here that we see, and and this is a truly practical point for the modern church we see today, because our ambition should be to remain as different from the world as possible. Too often in this world we see around us that that the, the, the world around us wants to blur the lines, the differences between Christians and non Christians. They want us to soften the idea that there are some that are not Christians in this world that are not obedient in this world. The world wants to blur those lines. And Christ says you don't blur the lines when it comes to who is my follower and who is not. Much like the saying, if you're not for me, you're against me. That's what he said. And so what you see in the scriptures here is that there is a distinctive difference in the Beatitudes 
signifies the differences between Christians and non-Christians. Those in the world seek to make us believe there's little difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. They attempt to blur the necessity of the Christian or being a Christian. They blur the necessity of having the church. They blur the, the, the lines or the necessity of obedience to God's word. One author says this, There were times when the distinction was clear-cut, and those have always been the greatest errors in the history of the church. We have been told that we have to make the church attractive to the man outside, and the idea is to become as much like him as we can. But the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Christ wanted his disciples to enjoy this true, genuine happiness, knowing that their true, genuine happiness was rooted in the distinctive nature of them being followers of him. And he knew that if they were these distinctive disciples of him, that others would want to join on. And he knew that if you chose to be happy, if we chose to be blessed, that we would want to be a part of those things. But that difference indicates a clear distinctive difference between the believer and the non-believer, the Christian and the non-Christian, the disciple and the one who does not follow after Jesus. What differences do we see? Well, you see there's differences in what they admire in the Scripture. You know, the Christian admires the poor in the spirit, the meek. Well, the world despises that, right, and views them as weak when you think about those things. Christ says his disciples... Those that are Christians, those that are going to follow after me are going to be those who are humble, who are meek, who are lowly in spirit. But the world looks down on such people. The world believes in self-confidence and self-expression, and you'll never find anything far more removed from the Beatitudes and the traits the world admires. You see a difference in what they seek. The, The Christian hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Righteousness is being right with God. And so what you see, that it means one lives in poverty or faces sarcasm and ridicule in order to remain and follow after righteousness. The Christian's going to do it. If they have that hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that's going to be their mentality that they're going to follow those things which lead to righteousness. But the world does not see the same things. Wealth, money, status, position, popularity, those things that the world views as being important, they're all cast aside. Those things are not sought by the disciple of of Christ. The disciple of Christ puts them to the side because they want to follow righteousness. You see a difference, too, in the Beatitudes as you go through. You see a difference uh, in those that are Christians and non-Christians and what they do. And the idea here is that there are certain things that are prescribed, This is consequential here. If they are different in what they admire and what they seek, they're going to be different in what they do as well. The Christian's ambition is totally different than the non-Christian. There is one point of similarity, and that is consistency. Both are consistent in their deeds. The non-Christian is going to live for this world and strive to get everything out of the world that he can. All the desires, all the affections, the interests are focused upon worldly amusements. Worldly activities take precedence. They take priority in every decision that's made. In the same way, though, a Christian who is truly seeking righteousness, who's, who has this mentality here of, of making decisions based upon what God wants in life and seeking after those things which God wants in life, they're going to do the things which God wants in life. That's going to be their priority in life. The Christian has a sole objective. They're to live for God with total devotion in all that is done. You know, if we truly believe we're called out 
from the world as the Lord's church is. We are not conformed to the world as Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says. If we're truly a people of God's own possession as 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says. If we're children of God as 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says. And we are serving God, the differences are logically going to follow. And the Beatitudes underscore that because the emphasis, the point of contention is, is cast to the wayside because the Christian has their priorities in place. They are going after those things which truly make them genuinely happy because of the same things that makes God genuinely happy. And our focus remains the same. Our duties, our, our, our admiration, our, 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 anything we do is there in sync with what God wants us to do. And the Beatitudes continue to help show us that the differences are underscored and outlined there for us to see. The Beatitudes also distinguish what the Christian can do. We don't always like to have restrictions in life. My children don't like it. I don't like it when my wife tells me I can't do something. I'm sure most of you don't like it whenever you're told not to do something. I see some teenagers down here. and That's usually a bitter pill to swallow when you're a teenager because you, you know what's best, I know. Um, you know, it's hard to hear the word no, or no, we can't do that, or we're not going to go there, or you can't stay up that late, and you have all these type of parameters on which you can operate and act. And you see, the worldly mentality is very similar to that as well. The worldly mentality and the worldly person believes in unlimited human potential. They really think if the mind can conceive it, then man can achieve it. The world sees no limitation to human potential. And that's not necessarily all bad sometimes. However, it does become bad whenever you forget there are limitations in place. You can't just do anything you want. Why? Because God says so. You know, I like it when my kids come up to me and say, Well, Daddy, why can't I do that? And I really don't have a good answer sometimes. Uh, You'll understand that if you have kids one day. and, And the answer is what? Because I said so. It's a good answer when you're a parent, right? you got the power. You know, you're the one who's in control. But what's interesting to me, and when I say that to my children, sometimes in my mind I can't help but think, you know, that's kind of what God is sometimes, you know. Well, God, why can't I do it? Because I said so. You know, and we have a hard time understanding that in our lives. Christians are the ones, though, who are acutely aware of the limitations that God has in place for them. If you are a follower of God, you are going to be cognizant of those things which God wants you to do in your life. You're going to know those limitations and those permissions. You're going to know the ways that, that Christ wants you to act. He's, you're going to know those things which, which God wants us to do. And the Beatitudes remind us that we must become something we are not and that it's not within our abilities to do sometimes. We've got to trust upon the Almighty God to accomplish those things. Is it always easy to mourn spiritually? Is it always easy to be meek and lowly in our mentality? You know, is it easy to to endure and and suffer through persecution? Is it easy for us to to be gentle and to be humble? Is it easy for us to be pure in heart? It's never easy to do any of those things, but Christ prescribes it for us. We know that's what we've got to go after. And because of God's wonderful faithfulness and those things which God gives us, uh, we can trust upon the Almighty God to to do those things which God wants us to do. The Beatitudes distinguish what the Christian can do in life. And the Beatitudes also remind us. Remind us that those on earth live in two different worlds. You can't help but see the contrast as you go through the Beatitudes. 
Now, obviously, you're seeing the cause and effect of what Christ is saying here. You know, if, you know, the idea, concept, if you're poor in spirit, you're going to uh, inherit or you're going to have the kingdom of heaven. That, that kind of a cause and effect uh, statements are seen there. But in the midst of those statements, you can't help but un, un, underscore and understand the fact that there is a reminder there of the difference of the world that we live in from the world that Christ wants us to be. And what you see the Beatitudes reminding us here is that the Christian and the non-Christian belong in two different realms. The first and the last promises in the Beatitudes are the idea of the same reward. You see there in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you go on down and you see at the latter part there, as those who deal with the persecution in verse 10, they've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's very interesting to see the bookends there, the Beatitudes. But why is there a bookend? It's because Christ is reminding us that there is a different world that we belong to. It's not the physical. It's not the things that, that, that seem to consume us on a daily basis. Christ is saying keep the proper perspective in your life because when you do, you understand that we live in a different place than those who don't understand. Our Lord starts and ends. One writer says, with it, because it's his way of saying that the first thing you have to realize about yourself is that you belong to a different kingdom. You're not only different in essence, you're living in two absolutely different worlds. You're in this world, but you're not of it. You are among other people, yes, but you are citizens of another kingdom. And this is a vital thing that's emphasized everywhere in this passage. And I think that you see the Beatitudes speaking loudly and resoundingly to us even in today's world, that if we want to be those true disciples of Christ, we're going to understand that we belong somewhere else. Our intentions, our focus, our behavior, all the things which we are to do in this world, we do because we are a part of a different one. It's a very deep thought. It's a very sobering concept for us to really think about is the fact that when we go to school every day and we go and endure the homework and the classes and we go through all of that, the trials and tribulations of going and growing up, that we are doing all those things on this earth, but we're doing them with a focus on another world, and that would be the heavenly world. When we go to work and when we we do things in the office, when we try to to be the example and the light uh, out in our communities, we are living a life... Because we are part of a different life. We have that spiritual mindset versus the physical mindset in our lives as we think about it. These general lessons, I think, are very encouraging to us. They speak to our hearts and they challenge us to make sure and make certain that we are different in those things which we experience in our lives. Now, I know I haven't touched individually on these Beatitudes. I did it on purpose. Because I know there's no time to get through all eight of these Beatitudes and go line by line and discuss them in their entirety. And all for the devotional, I'm going to go through them real quickly, I think, and give us the steps that we see that they provide to us for happiness in our lives. But really the general lessons give us that same perspective. That we can be blessed in our lives if we have that proper focus and maintain a proper perspective on the things around us. If we have a mindset of being poor in spirit, we are embracing that, that concept of Christ who gave up the, the concept or uh, gave up the, the throne in heaven and came to this earth in the form of man. 
Talk about humility. You talk about being really poor in spirit. That's Christ. We're exemplifying that mentality. When we think about those who truly mourn, spiritually mourn. And we're not just talking about mourning because we're sad that, that we've lost a loved one necessarily here. The idea and concept here is a spiritual mourning. That when we mourn for those things, we will be comforted. And the knowledge and the, the joy that we experience because we are a disciple of Christ. The idea of being gentle or hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Being merciful to others. Being pure in heart. Being a true peacemaker in this world. Those concepts all go to the root of changing our hearts. Forming our hearts to make sure that we are transformed to be more like Christ. And as he sat up on the mountainside, it's hard for me not to understand It's hard for me not to picture his disciples as they heard these lessons. What's intriguing as the Sermon on the Mount progressed and went through uh, the the later chapters, as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you get to the end of it over in chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, whenever the sermon is completed, at least in our, our Bibles that we have the account here, it's very interesting in verse 28 it says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed. You see, what is so intriguing about the allure of Christ and his teachings here are that he started off teaching and talking about what it meant to be a true disciple, what it meant to conform and change your life to be what his was like and what he wanted us to be like and what we need to be like to be able to enjoy this genuine happiness and blessings in life. But what's intriguing to see is that as this sermon progressed, The crowds continued to form. They were intrigued. They were allured. Why? Because Christ had the prescription here for true happiness. The people understood it. They saw it. They wanted it. In fact, they were amazed, it says here. Why? Because in verse 29 it says, He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I love the fact that there's a comparison there in verse 29 of this passage. Why? Because in the beginning of his sermon, as you look at the Beatitudes, as you look at these contrasting elements here, the whole point of Christ is is that we are to be different. We are to have that changed life. We are to have that changed mind. We are to have a changed perspective. We are to have a changed focus in life. Why? Because we want to be more like God, not like the scribes. Christ's lessons touched home to many. And his disciples, I believe, learned a profound lesson, even at the beginning of his sermon here on the Mount, to help encourage them to know that they can be blessed, come what may in their lives. And I love the eighth beatitude, by the way, talking about persecution. It came true. But what you see is that everyone who endured it was able to suffer and go through that temptation and that persecution and were able to come out stronger in the end. You see an example after example after example. Why is that? Because they had true happiness in their lives. It didn't matter if they were struck with a cord and whipped it didn't matter if they were stoned outside the city gate it didn't matter if they were thrown into jail for teaching and proclaiming christ as being the savior of the world it didn't matter to them why is that and why could men like peter and john sing in prison It's because they were truly happy 
and they were truly happy because they chose it. They chose to look at the things like these Beatitudes taught to them, to realize that the true mindset could be theirs if only they reached out and embraced it. Hopefully, hopefully we can do the same thing as we look at the Beatitudes and the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, that we can reach into that. We can choose happiness in our lives instead of all of the other negative thoughts that may enter our minds and thoughts because we have that proper perspective in the things that we do. Thank you for your attention.